Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Dr. Ben Cothra, Associate Professor in History at California State University, Fullerton, grew up in the Pacific Northwest, by his own admission, a long way from 52nd Street. A lover of stories and literature and later history, he also became enamored of Miles Davis' iconic jazz LP, Kind of Blue, and continued to be fascinated with Davis's intriguing persona in photographs and on LP covers. His book, Blue Notes in Black and White, Photography and Jazz is a testament to Ben's own love of stories and the backstories behind the photographic culture of jazz. Ben speaks about the complex confluences of the many shades of gray in our evolving national narrative with respect to jazz musicians, the music they played, their photographers, the magazines, the newspapers, the record producers, the critics, and the ever-changing American lifestyle during the periods between the 1930s and 1960s. Hello, Ben. Welcome to New Books and Jazz. Great to be here. Well, really great to be talking to you. Uh, Ben, your book is Blue Notes in Black and White Photography and Jazz, uh, published by University of Chicago Press. Uh, It's a really inspired book. It's a dense book. Uh, There's a lot to it. So what I want to do is just find out a little bit about you, where you grew up, what your interests were, then we'll transition as to how you came to jazz and photography serendipitously, and then talk about some of the highlights in your book. So first, where are you from, and, and uh, where did you grow up, and what were your interests growing up? Well, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I was born in uh, Washington State and spent most of my childhood there, sometime in Idaho, and it was an awful long way from 52nd Street. It was. I went to college in eastern Washington in, in wheat fields, and um, so I didn't really have a very strong connection to jazz at all. It was really when I went to college, though, and a friend had some Miles Davis records, and I put on Kind of Blue, and there's Before My Life, Before Kind of Blue, and then there's My Life After Kind of Blue, after hearing it. So it's a story that probably a lot of people have. They hear an important, beautiful record like that, or they see and hear a performance, and there's the before and after. So that's how I got started sort of interested in jazz and listening to it, but I'm not a musician. I'm someone who is a, an informed fan, shall we say. So this was something that was in in the background of your life. Uh, why did you become a history major and, and decide that you wanted to teach history? Well, it's, it's strange. I grew up just loving stories, and it didn't seem to matter whether it was uh, they were true stories or fictional ones. I was an undergrad major in both English and history, and always thought I kind of wanted to teach literature. Then went to uh, graduate school and figured out that I'd rather write history than write literary criticism. So that's kind of almost by default. I became a historian, and I love teaching history as well. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, 
that's what I went to graduate school for, and I went uh, in Saint to graduate school in St. Louis at Washington University. After my master's, I took a break and I started working at the Missouri History Museum in St. Louis. And one of the things that sort of bothered me when I went to St. Louis to live was that the native son, Miles Davis, had died in 1991, and there was very little said about it in St. Louis. This was front page news in the New York Times and other newspapers around the world. It was a big deal. It didn't seem to be a big deal in St. Louis, but all I knew about St. Louis when I went there was the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team and Miles Davis. That was about it. But there was very little said about it. And so when I started working at the museum, I sort of floated the idea, well, why would we do an exhibition on Miles Davis, on his life, on his music? And one thing led to another. We finally did it. It opened in 2001. And that sort of put me on the track for this book because one way to help tell the story of Miles Davis's life in exhibition form was to use photographs. And it seemed as though so many important photographers, really great photographers, had taken his picture. And there was hardly there were hardly any bad ones. I mean, he seemed so photogenic, both in the sense of being handsome and and you know the camera loved him, but also he seemed to constantly have this self possession and understood the image that he was projecting. And I just got very curious about where does this come from? Why are these people taking his picture? And what do these images mean in the 1940s and 50s? And I began to think beyond just Miles Davis, and that's that's where the the seeds for the book were born. Yeah, and your your book is fascinating because uh, you know, there's that that famous picture of of Louis Armstrong that is not a typical picture that we often see of Louis Armstrong, where he's uh, you know very pensive and obviously very reflective. Um, and then of course you have lots of iconic pictures of Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. One of the things. I got from your book was the influence of Life magazine on popular mm-hmm. culture and how that influenced people's perceptions of jazz. Uh, I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that. Sure. It was very powerful. Uh, the, the subscription rate for Life magazine, founded in 1936, by the early late 30s, early 40s, was 25 or 26 million. And that doesn't count the pass-around uh, quality of the magazine. Uh, so that many, many people might see a particular uh, copy of an issue. It's a, it's a media world where images are coming into their own, Photojournalism is coming into its own. Technologically, we're able to transmit images around the world for the first time quickly and reproduce them quickly. And so, uh, life is right on time. It's a time, uh, it's a time, time life Henry Luce publication. And it immediately becomes a, a competitor with the Saturday Evening Post as the most popular magazine in America. So, the way it uh, portrays something is the way that 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 image sort of gets burned into the minds of of millions of people. So the way it portrays jazz will do a lot to shape the public perception of the music. It's true though of anything that it turns its attention to. It's that powerful in a world where we are inundated by images and can go online and get any kind of image we want. 
Um, that wasn't the case in the 1930s, 1940s. People looked forward every week or two weeks in the case of, of early life to getting that collection of pictures and looking through it and reading the captions and feeling like you're somehow able to see much more of the world than you would be able to otherwise. Remember, too, this is the world before television. So it's very powerful. It's exponentially more powerful than any magazine can be today. And so it, I, I started with it because it it, it really began uh, right at the, the important period of the 1930s when jazz reaches its height of popularity. And because it's photo-based, the image of jazz would be very strongly impressed upon its viewers. And in fact, several photographers who came a little later told me that the early spreads on jazz in Life magazine were highly influential on them, deciding that they wanted to photograph this art form. So, yeah, life was very important, and there's a reason why I started the book with it. All right, so I wondered if you'd expand on that a little bit, Ben, because obviously central to your book is race and the mm-hmm. intersection of race and jazz and photography in shaping our own public perceptions of both jazz and race and the, the kind of the political uh, temperature of the country, country at the time. So um, there are some famous photographers that you talk about as to how they portrayed jazz and these particular jazz musicians. Yeah, well, one of the things that the book tries to do is give us uh, another lens onto this remarkable period from the 1930s to the 1960s when the country changes so dramatically. If you think about it, going from the midst of the Great Depression through World War II to the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, all of these are just huge uh, social changes uh, affecting the the American American life. And... This is one way of looking at those those changes, and race is a very important um, issue, and the way that jazz musicians are portrayed visually in the 1930s differs quite considerably from the way that they are portrayed in the 1960s. So what the book tries to do is, is trace the arc of that. How do we get from from one uh, set of images to another, and how is that uh, reflected in the way that um, the politics of the country, the U.S. emergence on the world stage, uh, black consciousness and the civil rights movement, how is all that playing in to the way these images are created? In uh, the case of life in the 1930s and 1940s, it starts out looking at jazz as kind of a fad for young people, and uh, an effort to sort of reassure parents that they're middle-class kids. It's okay for them to listen to Benny Goodman, <laughs> right? Because Benny Goodman has a, a professorial air about him, and it's very serious music, actually. They're less uh, concerned to calm parents' fears, for example, about what's going on at the Savoy Ballroom with these uh, black jazz band and the wild Lindy hopping that's going on. That's a little more questionable. So the, the politics of race are happening, even in the way that different big bands are being covered in Life magazine. By the 1940s, of course, the country is plunged into civil war, and it's a, a completely different ball game. At that point, Life is very careful to say that life, that, that jazz is actually a uh, a sign of American democracy, 
and that uh, the, the, the Duke Ellington Orchestra or musicians gathered for a late-night jam session recording their music for the troops are actually expressing American democratic spirit. Um, so when it becomes important to sort of close ranks and uh, make race a less important part of the picture uh, for foreign consumption, of course, then life sort of changes its tune. Can you give us some examples as to how photographs in life, for example, might have portrayed uh, a Benny Goodman band as opposed to a Duke Ellington band? And, and was there a conscious uh, thought on the part of the photographers, or did this reside with the editors of Life magazine? It's a combination. I mean, all the way through the book, not just in the case of Life, but in the case of record companies, jazz magazines, etc., uh, it's it's a combination of what does the editor or record company owner want in order to sell whatever the story or product happens to be, what is the photographer after, right? Because they want exposure, they want to get paid. They also, in many cases, have a very strong social conscience and want to portray these musicians with a sense of dignity. And, of course, what do the subjects themselves want? They want exposure, they want publicity, but they also want to maintain those things on their own terms, on terms that are acceptable to them. So the subjects have a say in it, too. There's sort of a three-way uh, conversation going on the whole time. In the case of Life, the two most prominent photographers who took photographs of jazz for Life were Charles Peterson, who himself had been a jazz musician. He was a white jazz musician, played the guitar, and had played with various uh, hot bands in the 20s and 30s, then learned photography. And he had a special kind of access to jazz musicians because they knew him because he was one of them. He was sort of part of the fraternity. So he was able to achieve certain photographs that were more intimate and that other photographers simply wouldn't have been able to get. For example, he took a photo of Louis Armstrong backstage doing an informal jam session with some white musicians, including Tommy Dorsey. Uh, this was the first time that I could find that there was interracial music making portrayed in the magazine. And it's the first time they had published an image where musicians of both races were making music together. Uh, most of the time, and in fact, in the rest of that 11-page layout on swing music, it was strictly segregated. So uh, because Peterson had a particular kind of access and cachet, he could get that kind of image. Later on, the great photographer John Mealy, uh, the Albanian immigrant who was a great innovator technically in photography, uh, turned his attention to jazz, and he felt very strongly uh, a sense of uh, social justice needed to be imparted. He was somebody who had great respect for black musicians, and he focused on them, particularly in a late-night jam session that the magazine sponsored in Neely's studio, and Duke Ellington showed up, and uh, Mary Lou Williams showed up, and a great variety of musicians, some white musicians as well. Uh, and these folk made music together. They were recorded for the, uh, the V-Disc program to be sent overseas to the Army. 
And really, it's an instance of foregrounding African-American musicians in life in a way that blacks in general had really not been foregrounded in the magazine previously, not certainly not to this degree. And that's in part because Mealy himself believes strongly in what the music represents. So, you know, the, the, the editors of the magazine sometimes softened that, that sense by what they would write for the captions that go with the images. So it's not just the photo itself. But there's definitely a sort of three-way conversation going on there about what these images will mean in the context of publishing them in this magazine. It's complicated. (laughs) It is. You kind of have to go from one to the other to the other to get the complete picture. Yeah. Um, And then what the critics said, and then the critics of the critics, and uh, wow, there's just so much to it. I want to back up really quickly. I don't recall, obviously, later on you talk about how Miles Davis wanted to exert control over the photos that he had for his LP covers and, and, and Sonny Rollins. I don't recall if you mentioned, did Louis Armstrong uh, have any type of control as to how he wanted his persona uh, uh, photographed and, and uh, shown? I didn't study it specifically, but I know that early on he pretty much did whatever uh, uh, the publicity folk needed him to do, particularly in the 20s and 30s when he's essentially backed by people with mob connections. So he basically has to do what he needs to do, right? By the time the 50s roll around, he's becoming such an icon himself uh, that that while he has a certain amount of influence and control, uh, his image is so powerful that Columbia can do almost anything with him by the time he reaches them, and he'll sell the records. So uh, he's less of a trailblazer at that point. At that point, he's sort of the grand old man of jazz. Um, whereas the younger generation, like Miles Davis or Sonny Rollins, they're making their way. They're creating a new image at that moment. So that's why I investigated them more carefully. Okay, so the transition might be in your book would be the bebop era, and yeah, I would say maybe so. and 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 Dizzy Gillespie. Now, what did Dizzy Gillespie mean in terms of jazz and in terms of race, and then how jazz was uh, shown through uh, photography? Well, Dizzy Gillespie is a fascinating figure in so many ways. Of course, a brilliant musician and innovator of bebop, and beyond that, he had other innovations later on. But uh, one of the things that he does in the 1940s is a very savvy sense of trying to uh, achieve greater visibility for the music. After all, bebop is something that was hatched late night in at Minton's Playhouse and, and small clubs up in Harlem after hours, uh, after the clubs basically were closed. Uh, so this is something that had been kind of a secret music. It had a secret history. There had been a recording ban on during the war while the music was hatched, so people didn't have it on record really until a little later on. So uh, Gillespie's real effort in the mid to late 1940s is to try to sell the music, try to uh, make it more visible. And he does this in, in multiple ways. One way is his own persona. He creates this look, which uh, then is capitalized upon. It's the beret, the, the goatee, and the, the heavy dark glasses, which give him sort of a, a quizzical but professorial look, right? So it's take it seriously, but there's also some fun being had here. Uh, it's that combination that Dizzy seems to represent. 
Now, the interesting thing is that's all well and good, but if nobody sees that image, what good does it do? He had an ally in this, William Gottlieb, a person whom I got to interview uh, just before he died. And the uh, photographer Gottlieb and the musician Gillespie were sort of partners in crime. Uh, Gottlieb worked for Downbeat magazine. Downbeat was uh, is still probably the most important uh, magazine that covers jazz. Very significant then as well. And it, but it had a disdain for bebop. It really didn't like that music. In fact, bebop seemed too black. I mean, they didn't come out and say it in quite those terms, but it sounded to them disorganized, it sounded too rhythmic, and you get the picture. Uh, Gottlieb heard it and thought it was really important, that it was an important new development in jazz, that it really was moving the music forward. He befriended Gillespie, began taking his picture, uh, and began uh, a campaign, really, to get Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and other innovators like Thelonious Monk greater exposure in the magazine. So Gottlieb would write articles on them. He would take their photographs. He would get those photos published in the magazine, sometimes in cropped form. It's not a great venue for, you know, it's not an art journal for photographs. It was quite the opposite. But this was part of a campaign to increase the visibility of the music. And in fact, uh, Gillespie did achieve a great deal of popularity by the late 40s uh, and up until about 1950 when it seemed as though it was time for a new flavor of the month and an ally like Gottlieb had retired to other endeavors. But I think it was a good example of the way that photography and a kind of full-court press on the part of both the musician and the photographer could uh, have an impact on selling the music. And Gillespie himself was very savvy in terms of the promotion and the marketing. He clearly had uh, clear ideas about how he wanted to be shown and marketed. Absolutely. He uh, not only cooperated with, with other magazines, including Life, a uh, shoot that didn't do quite as much for him as he'd hoped, uh, but he also had strong uh, contacts within the record industry. He took out ads to thank various people in the industry in the trade magazines. Uh, there were, uh, you know, the cultivation of his image at concerts. It got to the point where people were starting to come to his concerts dressed with berets, wearing goatees, uh, and wearing glasses, you know, so it became kind of a fad there for a while. Um, but, but underneath all of that, Gillespie, of course, was a very serious musician and, and wanted the music to be taken seriously. And for quite a long time it was. Then when it became less commercially viable, overtaken by other forms, uh, suddenly uh, he didn't get as much press. In your book, you um, it it uh, it occurred to me that it, you went from Life magazine as this powerful social organ for showing jazz and jazz musicians and reflections of race. You go through Dizzy Gillespie, and, and then you talk about the long playing record and mm-hmm. what a tremendous influence that had on listeners in their perception of race and jazz. And that was actually my era. When you mentioned um, uh, Miles Davis and Kind of Blue, I had the same reaction you did. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when I heard it, I thought, this is the coolest thing I've, I've ever heard. And so what was the effect of the technology of the long playing record 
And then somebody like Miles Davis, who was a, a, I mean, a unique individual in persona, not just in jazz, but anywhere in history. Indeed. Uh, well, if we think about when the LP comes in, it comes in at about the same time that television comes in, and it comes in at the same time that GI Bill is helping and FHA loans are helping people move out to the burgeoning suburbs. It comes out at the same time interstate highways are being planned. It really comes out at the same time that Americans are going from in their entertainment, a public culture based on going to clubs and movies to a private culture based on uh, barbecue in the backyard, television in the in, in, in inside the home, and your private record collection. That's how you're hearing your jazz, right, uh, if you're a jazz fan. The LP just fits perfectly with that. It's it's a portable piece of music. You can take it with you. In fact, you can eventually mail order it. Columbia Records, which was Miles Davis's label, and eventually Armstrong's and Duke Ellington's too. Uh, you could you could order the records. You didn't have to leave your home. They would come to you. So I think uh, the LP changes is part of the changes happening in the way Americans experience leisure and the way they live their lives in the post-war years. But it's also uh, in the way that the LP album cover begins to use photography, which finally is becoming uh, cost-effective enough to be able to reproduce on album covers, these 12-by-12-inch covers, uh, it's making race more visible. I mean, it's it's making. I mean, if you're going to have a photograph of the artist on the cover, you're going to have the photograph of a an African American on that cover, full size in your home, and that uh, makes that makes for a different kind of visibility for jazz. I mean, the sort of racial, obvious, racially obvious characteristics of the music could be confined only to the music itself prior to this. Now it's actually part of the way the music is packaged. And it coincides, I mean, all these things are happening in the suburbs, but what else is happening in the 1950s? Brown versus Board of Education and a more strident and focused civil rights movement. So all this is happening at once. And, and to me, the LP cover is a way where all of these trends are concentrated in very powerful ways. Miles Davis and others, and he and Sonny Rollins and others, to me, are among the musicians who are taking this new form, the LP, and not only expanding what uh, you can do musically, because now you have more room on a 33 and a third LP to do longer pieces, for example, but you also have this visual form to do interesting things on the front of the cover to sell the music. Uh, and part of the way the music gets sold, at least in Miles Davis's conception, is to not run away from his blackness, but to actually feature it and to make very direct a statement of it. And, of course, he begins to sell a lot of records, and uh, the more he sells, the more control he gets over the way his music is packaged and presented. Yeah, so fascinating reading this, and you talk, of course, about that iconic album cover where he's looking right at you 
Yeah, it, it kind of, yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of like Manet's Olympia, right? Where she's just out there looking right at you, like yeah. Wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, deal with me, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and and look at how he's dressed on that cover. He very very upper middle class Brooks Brothers, you know, Oxford cloth shirt. He's sitting on what looks like an Eames chair, very mid century modern. I mean, he's very up to date, right? And the other thing that's really up-to-date is he's looking right at you in a manner that is just unthinkable if it were the 1930s, say. Um, would not have seen that kind of image published anywhere. It's certainly not published in order to sell something like a, like a jazz record. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, in reading your book, I'm thinking, you know, these marketing people – they had me because I can remember in the late 60s, early 60s, growing up in the Berkeley Hills, and my parents were both musicians. My mom was a classical musician, but having that album and looking at that album cover and listening to Miles Davis, you know, with the new high fidelity setup, and thinking, "Wow, this is this is cool. This is dangerous. This is different." And, uh, stuff. yeah, yeah. And, uh, I think the way you explain it in the book is just really revealing, uh, is really fascinating. Um, mention a couple more, uh, uh, of Miles Davis album covers. I think it was really interesting, uh, with his uh, wives, girlfriends, and how he insisted that they be put on the cover. Uh, I think it was his, his first wife, the dancer, Francis, that he, Francis. he put, yeah. yeah, um, the significance of that. And, and then I want to, you know, move on on to some other incredible examples you have in the book on Sonny Rollins and West Coast jazz, but let's stay with Miles Davis a minute. Sure. Well, uh, as time went on, I mean, there was a trend in pop music of putting, uh, for example, fashion models on the cover of the of the LPs. Obviously appealing to, I mean, they, as you say, they understood their demographic, right? They they got it that it was it was men who were mostly buying these records. So you put an attractive woman on the cover, and, and what Miles Davis doesn't necessarily rebel against that, but what he wants to project is um, something besides uh, putting a white model on the cover. Uh, why not put a black model on the cover, and why not put his beautiful, uh, talented dancer wife on the cover? So uh, what he's doing is, it may not be a great blow for feminism, but it is uh, a, a change in, in the sort of racial makeup of the feminine on a jazz album cover. She, uh, I think she first appears as part of a cropped image that the great photographer Roy DeCarava took for the Porgy and Bess uh, LP. And it's a very sensuous image. We only see her legs, and we see her seated next to Miles Davis. And they've got this trumpet they're both holding, and it's kind of this sensuous image. But it's mysterious. You can't see their heads because the image is cropped. And so you can kind of guess that it's them, but most people didn't know that it was her at all or that they had to guess that it was even him. By a couple of years later, he's he's much bolder about this. Uh, he has an album called Someday My Prince Will Come, uh, recorded in 60, 61, released 61. And uh, on this cover, I mean, he, he's taking the title from the Disney tune, Someday My Prince Will Come, which he performs on the record. And she, in close-up, is the cover model. 
And he was very particular about this. He was on the road when the photo shoot was happening. He was calling the photo studio at Columbia saying, do it this way. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. And he was very, very serious about getting the right image for this album. So she appears on the cover, and he basically plays the role of the prince. If you turn the, the album cover over, he is then pictured on the back cover at work with a manuscript. He looks like this artist at work. He's basically the prince. There's also a tune on the album called Francing, which is sort of Fran Francis the Dancer, right? So uh, there's this little play being uh uh, acted out with Someday My Prince Will Come. She's ostensibly thinking this on the album cover and then he's on the back playing the role of this, of this prince. It's kind of a send up or comment on, I mean, Disney was very popular at this time. Disneyland opened in 1955. It was on television all the time. Uh, it was a very popular tune as well. But what happens when the prince and the princess are black <laughs> it's it's sort of not the image that uh was being projected by disney or by the rest of, of the culture i mean snow white francis davis is not snow white but she's playing she's playing this role of the princess so this is a sort of thing that that davis really started doing um selling the record yes making a beautiful image for the cover yes but also playing with these cultural ideas in a way that was kind of subversive. And I, I find that fascinating, a uh, fascinating aspect of his art artistic persona. Yeah, you mentioned, too, that uh, wasn't he in the first interview uh, with Playboy magazine as well? Yeah, he was the subject of, uh, I believe, yeah, the first full-length uh, Playboy interview. Someone who at that moment seemed to be uh, a mysterious figure, but also somebody who, in a way, was admirable. I mean, he was considered one of the best-dressed men in America. GQ uh, called him that. Uh, he had this kind of uh, era of entitlement, but he also was handsome, and he could deliver the goods. You know, clearly he was one of the, the great music makers of the day. So there's no fascination with him in the years really prior to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. In a way, for a while, Miles Davis represented the new sort of upper-middle-class image of black uh, success. Um, of course, underneath that, he was really considered himself more of a rebel than that. But as, as he also told interviewers, you know, as long as I've got my stock in Con Edison, I'll be fine. You know, it's like he was he was winning he was winning at the at the white man's game, and that that was sort of a, a something he had fun with. Yeah, that that was just a fascinating and and compelling uh, chapter. Um, I don't want to leave Miles Davis without the mention that you give, of course, with that famous incident outside of Birdland, too, right. which which where he was uh, beaten by uh, a policeman out outside the club, um, and that wasn't that on the front page of the the New York Times. That was covered. Yeah, it was covered around the world. Uh, having said what I just said. Uh, all of that was true. What was also true was that uh, this person who had just recorded Kind of Blue and was there at a club that night and making a record for uh, Armed Forces Radio or broadcasting for Armed Forces Radio, 
could go out and get an encounter with the police and uh, be beaten up and then charged with, he was charged with battery, um, when it looked as though he hadn't really done much at all. He pointed to his picture and said, I'm, I'm, you know, playing in the club. And they said, move along. And he wouldn't move along. And that was enough to spark a, a fight. And uh, then he ends up in a paddy wagon and ends up being charged. So it didn't really matter how significant he was, how important he was. It didn't really matter what his image was. In the end, when it came to the benefit of the doubt, as a black man, he was not going to get the benefit of the doubt. He didn't get the benefit of the doubt on the sidewalk that night, and that's just how it was. So it pointed out that uh, while a lot of progress is being made, there's a lot of tension still and, and issues that are unresolved, and the Birdland incident uh, makes that very clear in 1959. You're in uh, the Los Angeles area, Ben, and, and one of the, another fascinating part of your book was the very conscious marketing of West Coast jazz. And I found that absolutely uh, fascinating as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What were the, the conscious ideas behind marketing West Coast jazz and the album covers? And there there was this one, to me, it seemed absurd of a, of a guy in a wetsuit coming out of the water holding a music stand and, what was it, a trumpet? I can't. Yeah, um, he, uh, he <laughs> comes up out as though he's some kind of Neptune, jazz, yeah. jazz Neptune who comes yeah. out of the water. The photograph was taken by William Claxton, who was uh, really the dean of West Coast jazz photographers, a wonderful man. I got to interview him as well before he died. Uh, he uh, was a key player in the development of the uh, West Coast jazz movement. Uh, he, he was involved not only in, in the record companies, um, Pacific Jazz in particular, he also contributed to Theme Magazine, which was sort of a West Coast version of Downbeat that covered the music. But in his album cover photography, he and other designers and photographers really crafted a look for the West Coast that, as you say, was very conscious. Very consciously were trying to create a different image for jazz. They felt like, well, jazz is thought of as something done in a tight, closed room late at night with sweating musicians, uh, drinks, and sort of a dank atmosphere. Uh, well, what they're describing is an East Coast jazz club, basement jazz club, right? And and the implication is that the musicians are black. Well, most of the West Coast musicians were white. And, uh, of course, in California, you have a different climate. And so they very consciously said, you know what, let's, let's make images where people are outside during the day. It'll look more healthy. And, and you know, it doesn't matter that Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker were busted for, for, <laughs> for drugs, you know. That's, that's not the point. The point was, okay, let's sell the California lifestyle. Let's sell this image of California. California is growing faster than any other state in the 50s, you know. Orange County becomes Orange County. Disneyland comes in. It's rapidly growing and affluent. And they tap into that. And they tap into it before the Beach Boys do. You know, this is what the Beach Boys would do. They would create the sort of the California dream. And their music and their their imagery would, would project that. These jazz folk are doing that in the 1950s. And they're creating an image for West Coast jazz. 
that's not only brighter, but whiter. The musicians themselves are mostly white. And the commentary on the music often emphasizes its compositional quality and how calm it is. And that's a word that comes up a lot. It's calm. It's not frenetic. It's not out of control. It's not emotional. It's calm. It's thoughtful. Chamber music, Jeff. Yes, it's chamber music. Yes, it's the next thing to chamber. It's a modern kind of chamber music. And actually, there's. it's not that there's no truth to this. Listen to Jimmy Jeffries' music or, or Chet Baker's or uh, Jerry Mulligan's. It's very clear that they're they're influenced by uh, classical chamber music. Uh, but that's that consciousness of how to market it to a, a newly affluent um uh, record buying public is is really remarkable, and uh, Claxton confirmed to me that that's precisely what they were trying to do. Yeah, and and then you contrast that with the the other side, which was the noir writings of of kind of Raymond Chandler and the and the noirish movies, and and also kind of the racial tension in Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Department. I thought that was just that's a whole new book, I think. It really, you. it really is. Uh, you know, Claxton himself, as a teenager, used to go down to Central Avenue in the '40s to these interracial clubs, and uh, some of them weren't even really clubs, right? They were in somebody's back room. Uh, the the racial discipline that Chief William Parker and the LAPD uh, meant to impose upon Los Angeles in the late 40s and early 50s really changed the music scene pretty dramatically. Um, Central Avenue uh, really didn't survive with any strength into the 1950s. And the, the, a lot of the music making began to take place really in Hollywood and musicians connected with the Hollywood studios. So that sort of wild, uh, you know, playground of the night that uh, Claxton had first experienced really gave way to this new um, placid uh, 1950s where uh, jazz seemed a little bit safer. And that's something that obviously was projected in the imagery that he created to market the music. So now we we come to the outlaw, the the, <laughs> in, the independent guy who who rides his horse into town and, and I just I really uh, thought that was fascinating. Uh Sonny Rollins as a character is such a a fascinating uh character and such a complex guy, but and here still he making would, great music. Yeah, we heard him at the uh, Monterey Jazz Festival last year. Um, yeah. Just fantastic. Um, but there's this great album cover where he's uh, in his in his cowboy <laughs> outfit. Uh, yeah. Literally like an outlaw coming out to Los Angeles. Uh, talk a little bit about Sonny Rollins and the Mario. And he, I think he he liked that marketing scheme, right? He he said he well, even he liked contributed Western. to it. Himself. Yeah, he contributed to it. I mean, he came he comes out of Harlem and and uh here he is in his first visit to the West Coast. And he gets a one record deal with Contemporary Records and he, they're going to go shoot the album cover and it's unclear exactly who had the original idea, but but everyone agrees that Sonny Rollins had a lot of input on this wanted to go out and shoot uh as though he were a black cowboy or gunslinger from the from the old west and so 
Claxton was a photographer. Uh, it, it, this is just one of his many memorable album covers. And uh, out in the desert, here is uh, Sonny Rollins with his saxophone and a, a big hat uh, and a very serious look on his face. He's a bad dude. Uh, and the album is Way Out West, which is one of his best and most interesting records. And what Sonny Rollins represented was really uh, the, the free agent, the independent uh, uh, record maker who went from label to label in the late 50s, hit all the major small independent labels. Um, and we look at his album covers and they project a really interesting image of strength and dignity and mystery. Uh, the most playful one being way out west. He said that he really what he was trying to do was play Herb Jeffries, the old singer for Ellington who had starred in black westerns that uh, played to black audiences in places like Harlem. Harlem on the Range, you know, the Bronze Buckaroo. These were old movies that he had grown up seeing in the 30s. So while uh, white audiences or record buyers may have thought, oh, he's trying to play John Wayne here on this cover or, or Tom Mix or somebody, he thought he was playing, you know, a black black cowboy. And he was aware as well that the West had been, uh, you know, populated with, with quite a few African-Americans in the 19th century. So for him, uh, this was part of his own African-American heritage. But uh, he, he made it work for the album cover. It was very famous. But he ended up uh, on Prestige Records with a very famous album, a saxophone Colossus, where he looks like uh, Colossus of Rhodes in, in silhouette. And he also worked with the great Francis Wolfe at Blue Note Records for a couple of his albums. And those images became iconic as well. You might want to mention that uh, image, and I, I think uh, it was Wolf, uh, where he's shirtless, um, and it's a real contrast to the cowboy uh, record album uh, that he made. Yeah, I mean, as as time went on, uh, you know, Sonny Rollins, he's a, he's a very thoughtful person, and uh, he's dealing with sort of what it's like to be a black man in America. He uh, revealed that he had been trying to find an apartment in New York City and he's being refused right and left. And it was because he believed of the race question. Uh, he did this record called Freedom Suite for uh, Riverside Records, which was another of the important indie labels. And Paul Weller took the photograph, but uh, he had himself photographed without a shirt as though he were a slave. And uh, this was a, a non-too-subtle commentary on what was going on at that moment. I mean, he's very conscious of civil rights, thus the, the title track, Freedom Suite, which took up an entire side of the LP. I mean, this was, a, again, a way of using this new format to create uh, longer structure, bigger structures, longer uh, recordings. And so we covered an entire side with this um, Freedom Suite. Uh, this is a way that Rollins, uh, I think, carved out in the context of an indie label, uh, really a, a civil rights statement. And that wasn't as easy to do at larger labels. And uh, Rollins insisted on this at Riverside Records. And he had the support of Orrin Keep News, who is, of course, a very famous uh, producer and at that time was the co-owner of, of Riverside Records. Ben, you also mentioned uh, towards the end of your book uh, the great uh, saxophonist John Coltrane mm -hmm. and how he was 
portrayed and how his image was consciously put out there um, as kind of a transcendent uh, figure in jazz. I wonder if you might comment on that. Yeah, well, the question that runs throughout the book is, are, are, are these just images of people or are they really this way? You know, Gottlieb, the great Herman Leonard, they would say, well, these photos are the essence of the personalities of these people. We we hung around them, we got to know them, and the pictures express who they really are. It's not just a, it's not just an image to sell something. Uh, the, it comes up again with John Coltrane, who is thought of and, and lauded as a kind of uh, spiritual uh, questing figure, someone who is so passionately, um, you know, seeking after some kind of spiritual transcendence that you hear that in the music and you see it in the pictures of him performing the music. His great uh, collaborator, uh, so to speak, was Roy de Carava, who was a great photographer aside from the issue of jazz. I mean, this is somebody who's one of the most important photographers in 20th century U.S., um, art photographers, fine arts photographers. In the early 60s, he began following Coltrane up and down uh, the, the East Coast, uh, going to his club gigs, photographing him over and over. He almost photographed Coltrane with the kind of obsession that Coltrane was showing in his music, right? Constantly seeking for that essential note. Uh, De Carava seeking for that essential image that would somehow convey the passion that he heard in Coltrane's music. And so the the chapter really looks at these two careers in parallel. Uh, one, De Carava as a black photographer, uh, trying to make it, trying to find the great image and also trying to survive and also eventually becoming a mentor to younger black photographers. Coltrane doing what he does in music, uh, seeking the best note, uh, making uh, difficult and complex records, and two, becoming a mentor to younger, more avant-garde black musicians who are having a hard time getting themselves heard and who are dismissed by uh, older jazz critics, most of them white jazz critics. So Dekarov and Coltrane seem to have this uh, symbiotic uh, relationship in the 1960s, and I think the burden of the chapter is that what we see in their careers in the 60s is the, the, the really the, the flowering of a black consciousness that we'll see become even stronger in the later 60s and 70s in the culture. Really interesting, Ben. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, some some new projects that there must be, I can't imagine, given your past work, that you don't have about 20 projects that you would uh, like to go. I can see 20 directions from this book alone that you could <laughs> investigate. Um, what kind of things are you uh, looking at, and are you going to continue to look at uh, photography and or jazz? Well, uh, photography is something that, that I hope to continue working on. I don't know that I'll do something with it right away. I continue to I teach a visual history course, and I'll keep doing it. What, one thing that did kind of grow out of this book that I'm, I'm starting to investigate is I want to look more closely at Duke Ellington. Uh, Duke Ellington spent a year in 1941 in Los Angeles, or most of the year, and while there uh, collaborated and produced what he felt was an important civil rights statement, the musical review, Jump for Joy. 
And this is happening in 1941 while the Great Migration is occurring. People are coming out of the South, pouring into California to get jobs in the defense industry. And, of course, the war is about to happen. Uh, later in 1941, uh, the Japanese will, will attack Pearl Harbor. And so the country is beginning to get on a war footing even before that. And in the midst of this, Ellington creates this review to celebrate black life, to say, come out of the land of cotton. That's one of the songs, talks about that. And basically stand up and be counted. So I just find that interesting convergence of things. And so I'm thinking of writing about that. I've also been uh, teaching in Italy. I taught in Italy this past summer and will again next summer. And I'm thinking about working on uh, sort of the way Americans have used Italy, thought about Italy, um, what Italy has meant to American writers, artists, photographers as they've traveled abroad over the years. And I may concentrate that on Florence, which is where I stayed. So that one's still in the uh, sort of nascent stage as well. Tell us a little bit about the uh, Center for Oral and Public History. Uh, you're the associate director there. What do you do there? The center is a really rich. It contains a really rich collection of oral histories, almost 5,000 oral histories, uh, interviews with people from the history of, of California and even beyond. The center sponsors projects that students primarily work on to uh, – tell the story through uh, of the past through interviews and through exhibitions. For example, one of our major projects over the past few years has been to interview people who were associated with the El Toro Marine Air Station uh, in Orange County, which closed in the 1990s. But we're, we've got hundreds now of interviews of people who were stationed there. And through those interviews, we're really beginning to understand uh, the the way that World War II changed Orange County and the way that uh, Orange County developed even after World War II uh, with the stories of people who came here for the base and then stayed here and really changed this part of California. So that's an ongoing project we've been doing. We also do public history projects. We uh, have put on a student-created exhibitions. One uh, opened last year. It was called New Birth of Freedom. Civil War to Civil Rights in California, it was meant to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War, as well as 50 years since the Freedom Rides. Uh, Californians played a much bigger role in the Civil War and Civil Rights movements than generally we're, we're, we're told. And we're just beginning to start a project in collaboration with the Oakland Museum of California to uh, help with their ongoing partnership with the Cal State system where our students uh, help help create a new exhibition. So so we're really busy at the Center for Oral and Public History, and we uh, are there to collect and preserve the stories of Californians. Sounds like a fantastic uh, project, Ben. I'm, I'm sure your students love your class. I'd, I'd be the first one to sign up and and, uh, and, and be in the front row. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, and I got so many so many insights. It, it made me think about uh, so many different things, and uh, I, I really recommend it. Just fascinating. The book is Blue Notes in Black and White, Photography and Jazz. The author is Dr. Benjamin Cothra. The book was published by University of Chicago Press 2011. And Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, just really, really enjoyed talking with you. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. 
Ben. Uh, that's Ben Cothra, Blue Notes in Black and White Photography and Jazz. For New Books and Jazz, this is Doc Stull. You've been listening to New Books and Jazz with Doc Stull. Today's book was Blue Notes in Black and White, Photography and Jazz by Benjamin Cothra, published by University of Chicago Press, 2011.